for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2 verse 9 The Godhead existed from before time, and in the Godhead was Jesus Christ. From the moment humanity fell, the path was paved for Jesus to redeem mankind from the clutches of the evil one. See, the only way we could be restored into the image of God and reconnect with divinity was through being saved by God himself. And today we'll go through this fascinating story of divinity through humanity. I am CJ Moyo and this is Humans of Adventism. The Desire of Ages is a book written by Ellen White and it was published in the year 1898. This is volume three of her series called The Conflict of the Ages, which is a biblical history of the world focusing on the conflict between Christ and Satan. So it starts off with patriarchs and prophets, goes on to prophets and kings, the desire of ages, which we're discussing today, the act of the apostles, and finally the great controversy. The desire of ages tells the story of Jesus and his teachings. The writing, which is one of my favorite parts of the book, is so special that you really feel like you were there. You were part of the story. You were following Jesus. It, it takes the accounts of Jesus from the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and expands from them. It, it even takes books of prophecy from the Old Testament, leading up to Jesus' first advent you begin to get a better understanding of the significance of Christ's acts and what that really means for us. This, The Desire of Ages, is my favorite book by Ellen White, mainly because it's, it's almost like a biography of the life of Jesus. I have realized that I am a big fan of biographies. I have not been a big reader most of my life. I've only really gotten into it recently. But I've realized that the books that I've enjoyed most are not necessarily fiction, but I like storytelling. And a good balance of that for me was biographies. So Trevor Noah's biography, Viola Davis's biography, and Jesus's biography, essentially. Some of my favorite books. So I got this book in 2016 if i remember correctly 2015 or 2016 i got it as a baptism gift and it's now 2023 and i finally finished this book earlier this year let that sink in seven or eight years with this book and that's how long it's taken me to read it and it's the longest book that i've read I got this book and it I I judge a book by its cover. It has a beautiful cover. And it fascinated me when I first got it. And I said, I really want to read this. I got this. I got The Great Controversy, The Acts of the Apostles, Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, Great Controversy, the full set. And I was like, I should really read these. This is this is nice. But I never got to reading it for seven years. The only two books that are finished properly by Ellen White are Steps to Christ and this, The Desire of Ages. And both such amazing books, Steps to Christ has its own um, like significance in my life. But I love The Desire of Ages. What a great book. 
I'm so glad that I somewhat delayed the reading, which is a good and a bad thing. But I think I needed it most for where I am in my life today. And I think I think sometimes in our Christian walk, we tend to feel like things should happen when we want them to happen. We always see like how other people's lives are going and we want to follow in that same path for our own lives. We want to work we want things to work out in our time. But sometimes that's not how it works. I remember growing up and I was always around Adventists. I had a lot of Adventist friends. And other friends were spiritually matured. They were more mature than me. And I remember a few times, it wasn't a lot. I remember a few times thinking to myself, I want to be like them. I also want to have this much Bible knowledge. And yes, I should have put in more effort growing up. But at the same time, that wasn't the path that God had laid out for me. You know, I had different things that I need to take care of. And yes, as much as it is my fault for not reading as much as I should have, but I'm here now. I've I've read and I've chosen Christ more so now. And the timing could never have been better. Whenever you choose Christ and fully choose to be His, that'll be the best time that you do it. And it's better to do it sooner rather than later. I have a hot take real quick before we go further into this episode. So, I told you about the conflict of the ages and there's this there's this book that is near and dear to the Adventist church which is the great controversy right that's our book of the year for the year of 2023 and for a lot of people like a lot of people they say this is the book that led them to the church to to being seventh day adventist essentially I mean, us right now this year, we are pushing this book as the book that the world needs, you know. And that's great and all. And also this hot take is is not like trying to say anything against the great controversy. But I truly feel people should be introduced to the deserved ages and steps to Christ before the great controversy. Why I say that is mainly because of how connected you feel to Jesus through the Deserve Ages specifically. You really fall in love and sympathize and feel guilty for all he went through. And you, you choose him because you begin to understand him. And I think that's a great foundation for when you eventually get into the great controversy and realize the battle between Christ and Satan is ongoing and you you know whose side you're on because he's revealed his entire 
his entire character, he's revealed his love for you and why he's fighting for you, why the controversy is going on for so long, why he, he died for us even though we're sinning. So that's my hot take. It's it's kind of been my pipeline into Adventist literature. I read Steps to Christ first, then The Desire of Ages, and now I'm in The Great Controversy. And with the way The Great Controversy begins, talking about Jesus's um, weeping over Jerusalem, I I tried to read like that first chapter in isolation from what I knew in Desire of Ages. And you almost don't feel as much of the hurt if you read The Great Controversy alone. But when you remember all the, all the journeys that Jesus went through, all the people he came across, the descriptions of Jerusalem, the descriptions of the festivities of the Passover, and then Jesus arrives and sees all of this happening, knowing true and well what was going to come after this, it's painful. So that's why that's why my hard take is people should read Deserve Ages before the Great Controversy. Don't don't attack me for this. This is just personal opinion. And yeah. But I I like a big, big recommendation for anyone to read Deserve Ages, no matter when you read it, before or after Great Controversy. It's a very important read for each and every one of us. The story of Jesus, narrated, inspired, and written in the Desire of Ages. Once again, I love biographies, and this biography follows Jesus from birth to death. All his miracles, all the people he came across, his love for each and every one of us. The Bible manages to take a very good account through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, and through prophecies that were in the Old Testament, through other books, throughout the Bible, you get to understand who Jesus was. But in the Desire of Ages, through visions, through inspirations from God, Ellen White manages to expand so much on the story of Jesus in in ways that I I did not expect. I truly did not expect the writing and this vivid image that would be painted in my mind by Ellen White. So why was Jesus even a big deal for Ellen White to have visions on and write a book that's about 600 pages long? In the beginning of this episode, we spoke about the existence of the Godhead from before time. And, I mean, this whole thing of the Trinity. Um, and even the Godhead is such a big controversy. But we strongly believe that Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit are one. And Jesus is basically God incarnate. So... In saying that Jesus was not a backup creation or a plan B once humanity fell. Jesus was God's providence for our mistakes, right? 
So the moment that humanity fell, we cut ourselves off from the divine power of God. In the first episode, we spoke about how man and God walked together. We were created in God's image. And because of our pure nature, we could commune with God. But giving over our lives to the devil, essentially, by choosing what he told us, we cut ourselves off from that divinity. But God did not want to just leave it there. God wanted to reclaim us as his creation. See, this is, this is one thing that fascinates me a lot about God. Take yourself um, as a creator, right? Just, just paint this picture with me. As a creator, I create something, it comes to life, and suddenly it's not working the way I want it to work. The main, the first thing that comes to mind, destroy it, start again. And God had every power to do that. But God is not a God of vengeance or violence as he's often portrayed. He's a God of love. We see this same love come in the, the beginning of the great controversy in heaven when Lucifer wants to exalt himself above God. And because of this pride, God is like, I cannot have you here in heaven, but I will not destroy you either because all the other angels around me will not worship out of love, but out of fear. So you will be cast down to heaven, to earth. You'll be cast out of heaven. And whoever wants to choose you will go with you. So that's exactly what happened. God did not destroy, but he said, choose. Choice has been there from the beginning of time and before that. So there was the devil. Adam and Eve chose the devil. And Jesus said, well, God, the Lord, said, okay, you've made a choice. I'll give you one more choice. I'll give humanity one last chance to choose who they want to follow. And from then, the path was paved for Jesus to come and reclaim divinity. Well, to reclaim humanity to divinity. And everything that led up to his birth, recorded in the book of Matthew, everything that God spoke to his children was a sign of what's to come. All the sacrifices, all the all the symbols, all the covenants that he gave were all a sign to what's to come. There was a sacrificial lamb. Jesus himself was called the lamb that was slain for our sins. There was the incense that was burnt and the smoke went up to heaven, which is a sign of the prayers that we sent up to God. I mean, even... The lineage of Jesus is so carefully orchestrated. And this was a sermon that we heard yesterday. And it's amazing how God perfectly lined up the pieces for the king to come to this earth. So we know that Dave, um, Jesus comes from the line of David, right? And because of our own carnal nature and thinking 
things should work the way we want them to work. A king will only come down from the line of a king. That's not really how it works. So, in the book of Ruth, I hope that's correct. We have the story of Naomi, right? And Naomi was now in a land that has a famine. And Naomi has a daughter-in-law. And Naomi tells this daughter-in-law, okay, you know what? It's best that you go back to your people because it's not going to work out because of this famine. Naomi wanted to leave. And Ruth is like, no, your people shall be my people. And she stuck with Ruth. And because of this, Ruth went with Naomi. And that's how she meets Boaz. Ruth and Boaz have a son, Obed, who eventually becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of King David. So for us to get to this point of King David, it's already a lineage of the least likely people. I mean, down this line, there's also Rahab, the prostitute. So how can a king come from this tainted bloodline, you know? And that's that's the thing with God. He doesn't work how our our foolish minds work, you know? Where we look down on people because of what they've been through and we don't realize what they can become. And that's been his entire thing from the beginning of time. Jesus was not accepted because he was not in the appearance of a king. But God is not here for the appearances assumed by mankind. You know, there's more to a person than that. It's the character that matters most. When we talk about Adam would grow in stature, it wasn't that it was going to become more and more beautiful. No, he was going to grow in character. So with David, for him to eventually become king, he had to go through this process of being a little shepherd boy, someone who was looked down by his family, until eventually a prophet comes through and says, you are going to be the next king. And everyone is like, how can this little runt be a king? How can this little runt be one to take down an entire giant? But he manages to do that. I mean, with the whole David and, the, and Goliath story, David's brothers were there. Eliab, big men who could have taken on Goliath because they were also big, but that's not the way God's story worked. God's story was for the least likely people to be the ones who preceded Jesus, and that's exactly how it happened. So I can imagine that throughout history and um, prophecy stating that the Messiah will come down the line of King David they expected the child to be born in the most pretentious, the most grandiose, the most ceremonial ways for them to know that this is the Messiah. Because humans, we love status. And what happens? Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, is born to a Virgin Mary, who isn't really that rich, neither is a husband, he's just a little carpenter, and he's born in a manger. They they didn't even have money to go to a hospital to have a proper birth. He was born in a manger. 
But see, God isn't here for our ceremonies. He isn't here for how we perceive greatness. God's here to break all our preconceived um, ideas, all these misconceptions we have about what his kingdom is like. Jesus literally had humble beginnings and he wasn't here to feed into our ideas of what a king is like. And so the story of Jesus begins. It was this, this idea that he is born of a virgin Mary that really didn't sit well with a lot of people. And to this day, it does not sit well with modern day Christians, Jews and other faiths. I mean, a lot of, I realize that Jews, Jews do accept that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, but he is not accepted as the Messiah, mainly because he, in Judaism, it is claimed that he did not fulfill messianic prophecy. But even the Jews of Jesus's time also believed that he did not fulfill messianic prophecy. And that's because they put Jesus in the jails of their own mindset. They believed Jesus should give them prosperity. He should be a king and overthrow those who were ruling over the Jews. But that's the thing. Jesus's kingdom is not the one that's down here. It's not this kingdom of castle and power and armies. The kingdom is set in the heart. It's set in your beliefs. It's set in your mind. And those who followed and accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they truly did get a new kingdom and had a new king while they were on earth. But those who wished for an earthly kingdom, well, the disappointment was theirs. In Muslim belief as well, Jesus is believed upon, but only as a human messenger appointed by God. And the other belief is that he did not die on the cross, but he was magically saved by God. And we'll get into that point soon, just now. However, the Bible does tell us that Jesus really is God incarnate. The verse we began with was, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, why would God decide to do such a thing? Why would he degrade himself? That's another thing that I've heard people use to take away any credibility from Jesus is he cannot be God because he brought himself down to human form. And you see, I get that. And it's because we, we have an idea of what godliness is. And that is so far from what true godliness is. God's incarnation is what many people use to disqualify Jesus from being God. Jesus coming down as man is what disqualified him from being God, apparently. This sacrificing love, this 
humility, this selflessness is so hard for us to understand because it's something that we really fail to practice in our everyday lives. So how can we understand it on a global scale? But you know what I love most is that God's love really does manifest itself in so many ways around us and we don't realize it. Let's look at nature for one. Nature is never there to serve itself. Nature is always there to serve someone else. The plants feed animals. Eventually humans feed on those animals. Um, trees don't just exist to look pretty. They're giving off oxygen. I mean, we are even giving back carbon dioxide to trees. It's a cycle of benefit, benefit, benefit. Um, a marriage with true love is about sacrifice. You sacrifice for your partner. But the biggest um, example of sacrificing love is a parent. A parent will sacrifice themselves, their freedom, their time to work for their children who cannot really give anything in return. And in a sense, that's, that's God. And it is why he's called our father. Because he provides, provides, provides as much as we may not provide back, but he has true sacrificing love. And even if we don't truly understand how God can come down as a man and still be God, we just need to have faith and, and trust, trust in his process. So the desire of ages tackles this this process of divinity to humanity, but also divinity in humanity, Jesus from child to adult, from life to death and back to life. In a quick review of the writing, Ellen White is an amazing author. I grew up not necessarily liking Ellen White, if, if I can admit. And it's because the way I was introduced to Ellen White was not necessarily the best way of portraying Ellen White. She often seemed like if you don't know Ellen White, you are not a true Christian. It was almost as if Ellen White's writings are at the same level as the Bible. And again, I'm not saying this in any way against any of Ellen White's works, but the way I was introduced to her really made me dislike her work, unfortunately. And it was only after I started reading for myself, putting aside anything I've heard from anyone else, and actually choosing to understand who she was as an author and what she was writing, that's when I truly started to fall in love with her work. The book, The Desire of Ages, is one of just the best biographies that I've ever come across. In terms of writing, in terms of emotion, in terms of painting a scene, she was gifted. She, If she was here today, she would truly be a best-selling author. And I'm sure her books are worthy of being best-selling books. I mean, The Desire of Ages is used in a lot of sermons and a lot of other Christian literature, 
because she really was that good. And you can tell that this is not just any ordinary person's writing. This, this is inspired writing. So she writes of him as a child, him getting lost, well, not lost, but remaining in the temple and his parents not knowing where he is. We go through all the disciples and the way Jesus meets them. And I loved all the chapters we would meet a new disciple. My favorite being um, the, the brothers fishing and Jesus comes through. This was uh, Simon Peter and his brother. And Jesus comes through and they're trying to fish, they're trying to fish, but they can't catch any fish. And Jesus is there watching, seeing these brothers get on with their day-to-day life, seeing what, seeing them do what they know. And Jesus says, well, cast your net on the right side. They trust this man and they cast the net and they start catching fish. And from there, Jesus says, likewise, I will make you fishes of men. Follow me. And for me, that is such a great sermon on its own. And it's a great example of the way Jesus worked in that he made do with what people knew. Often we try to teach and lead people to Christ from what we know. And they need to believe what we believe, not realizing that if we were to learn their life first, see what they know and mold Jesus, well, mold their lives according to what Jesus wants for them, that's when people would truly understand. If Jesus just came through and says, hey, we need to go save lives, come with me, these brothers might not have really understood. But for them, they realize that we put our faith in our everyday tasks in this man's hands. We put faith, our fishing, we put faith in our fishing and we manage to catch fish. So whatever he asks us, if we put our faith in him, we'll be able to accomplish it. And even in our own lives as Christians, we need to learn and understand this, that he can make do with whatever we're doing. A little personal um, testimony, I guess. The reason I do all of these things, the podcast and make artworks, clothing, whatever, is because I realized that God can really make do with anything in my life if I leave it in his hands. So I consider myself to be someone very creative. So I can definitely use this creativity to glorify him. And in this way, he's leaving an impact on my life as he did on many lives that he came across. There's not one person that Jesus came across in his lifetime that was not renewed, that was not, well, let me not say renewed, that was not impacted by his presence. I can't say renewed because there were those who tried to kill him and they refused to change because they hardened their hearts. But nevertheless, all of them were impacted greatly by his presence. So in saying that, 
Jesus will, you will never come to Jesus and leave the same way you came to him. It's not possible. I'm, I'm thinking about the, the disciples who are fishermen. I'm thinking about the multitudes. I'm thinking about all the people he healed, all the people who had demons. As soon as Jesus rocked up, your life will change for the better. Or if it doesn't, you will see the sin in yourself. But because of a hardened heart, well, that leads to destruction. And the same thing is true even to this very day. The character arc of Jesus was was lovely. I, One of my favorite things as you reach the end of his journey, there's a chapter that tells of his final journey into Jerusalem. So in his journeys leading up to his eventual death, he would heal or he would reach a multitude and he would send these people away and say, don't tell anyone. Or he would manage to slip out without anyone noticing and get away. Why he did this was he did not want a large following to go with him wherever he went because, well, some people that he was supposed to meet along the way maybe would have never gotten the chance of seeing Jesus if he had a large crowd around him. So this was his thing most of the time. But on his last journey, right, Jesus tells the disciples, get people. Jesus himself he makes a grand entrance. He is sitting on a donkey as a king would, and he makes his way into Jerusalem. All the people who had heard of Jesus, all the people who saw him, followed him. So why the sudden change? See, before this, he was on a mission, and wherever he was going to next, there were definitely people that had to have that personal time with Jesus. Now his job was done. Now he needed people to come and see his final act. And he needed as many people to see this final act. And that was going to be his crucifixion. This was going to be his, one of his last miracles on earth. So he has a large following. He has all of these people coming to him. They see him as the king because he is now riding into Jerusalem as a donkey, as the king would. To cut a long story short, he is eventually captured and we know the process of the crucifixion. He is held and he is sentenced, spat at, tortured. But there is peace on his face. There is a peace that is not human-like. And this alone touched many hearts. He is crucified, he is hung on the cross, pierced, and his face still has peace. Just seeing him up on the cross, at peace, as much as he is in agony, as much as his body does not show peace, you could see that this man was more than just a man. This was God, and that is exactly why he allowed for people to follow him, because they needed to see that this is no ordinary man that is hung up on that cross. Even that sign that was put on his cross that says, 
king of the Jews, God inspired for that to be written. And in the minds of the people, this sparked a little thought. As much as the Jews did not want to claim Jesus as the king, and they tried to get um, Pilate to change this inscription, he would not allow for that. And he wrote, this is the king of the Jews, basically. And everything worked out perfectly. Right then and there, prophecy was fulfilled. And Jesus rested, went to his tomb. And I could, I could go on and on about this book. I mean, the other thing I love was how the tomb was sealed by a large rock that could not be moved by one man. But here comes down an angel and the book itself says, rolled away as if it was a pebble by the angel. And the guards fell to their knees out of fear, trembling. And the angel calls Jesus forth. Come forth. The father is waiting. And Jesus heads out. Now my, my, my favorite part of this, when the disciples and Mary, when Martha all come look for Jesus, they find a neatly folded um, burial clothes in, in the tomb. And for me, it's like Jesus managed to derobe and he neatly folds and puts it in the tomb and heads out. And I don't know why, but I just, I just really liked that. And from there, Jesus is resurrected. Now, my favorite part of the entire book, there is this... Um, chapter called the walk to a mouse and it describes uh two disciples walking making their way and they're walking on the road to a mouse and they feel defeated because their savior is now gone and then they come across a man a mysterious man and they tell this man of their woes their sorrows the man they thought would be the king their savior the messiah was killed in the most humiliating way and this man, he, he begins to speak and the way he speaks really touches their hearts. During the journey, the sun had gone down and before the travelers reached their place of rest, the laborers in the fields had left their work. As the disciples were about to enter their home, the stranger appeared as though he would continue his journey. But the disciples felt drawn to him. Their souls hungered to hear more from him. Abide with us, they said. He did not seem to accept the invitation, but they pressed it upon him, urging, It is toward evening, the day is far spent. Christ yielded to this entreaty, the stranger, and went in to tarry with them. Had the disciples failed to press the invitation, they would not have known that their traveling companion was the risen Lord. Christ never forces his company upon anyone. He interests himself in those who need him, Gladly will he enter the humblest home and cheer the lowliest heart. But if men are too indifferent to think of the heavenly guest or ask him to abide with them, he passes on. Thus many meet with great loss. They do not know Christ any more than the disciples as he walked with them by the way. The simple evening meal of bread is soon prepared. It is placed before the guest who has taken his seat at the head of the table. Just a note on this, 
He's a visitor. Just remember that he's a guest. But he's taken the seat at the head of the table. Now he puts forth his hands to bless the food. The disciples start back in astonishment. The companion spreads forth his hands in exactly the same way as their master used to do. They look again and lo, they see his hands have the print of the nails. Both exclaim at once, it is the Lord Jesus, he has risen from the dead. They rise to cast themselves at his feet and worship, but he has vanished out of their sight. They look at the place which had been occupied the one by the one whose body had lately lain in the grave and say to each other, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? But with this great news to communicate, they cannot sit and talk. Their weariness and hunger are gone. They leave their meal untasted and full of joy, immediately set out again on the same path by which they came, hurrying to tell the tidings to the disciples in the city. In some parts the road is not safe, but they climb over the steep places, slipping on smooth rocks. They do not see, they do not know that they have the protection of him who has traveled the road with them. With their pilgrim staff in hand, they press on, desiring to go faster than they dare. They lose their track, but find it again, sometimes running, sometimes stumbling. They press forward, their unseen companion close beside them all the way. The night is dark, but the sun of righteousness is shining upon them. Their hearts leap for joy, they seem to be in a new world. Christ is the living Savior. They no longer mourn over him as dead. Christ is risen, over and over again they repeat it. This is the message they are carrying to the sorrowing ones. They must tell them the wonderful story of the walk to a mouse. They must tell who joined them by the way. And they carry the greatest message ever given to the world. A message of glad tidings upon which the hopes of the human family for time and for eternity depend. That is from the chapter, The Walk to a Mouse and the Desire of Ages, chapter 83. I truly encourage anyone with an interest in Jesus to read this book, The Desire of Ages. Read it as a biography if you have to. Then you can study it later on. But it is truly a great piece of writing and a great introduction into the character of Christ. Where would we be without him? Surely not as gifted as we are right now. We wouldn't have his divine protection over our lives. And I would not want to know what that life would be like. Thank you for listening in on this episode of the podcast. It was so great to be able to dive back into the Desire of Ages while preparing for this. And I'm interested and I'm looking forward to getting through the great controversy as well and really understanding this battle between Christ and Satan. I think you should let me know if I do more book reviews as I finish books and if you have any suggestions, let me know. Share the episode with your friends, with your family. Leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. But above all, find God. Find Jesus. Draw closer to Him. Try Him and see that the Lord is good. Pray you all have a good week ahead. And may the good Lord keep you and bless you.